Hello and welcome back to another episode of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. There are places that capture our imagination as we try to imagine life in a place that seems devoid of life. These are lost towns. Maybe you call them ghost towns. There is life to be sure, especially in Georgia ghost towns, where kudzu reclaimed structures and animals make nests, or fish now inhabit remains of buildings of towns now under man-made lakes. Lisa Russell will be our guide into what happened to these towns of Georgia's past. Lisa M. Russell supports regional, historical, and archaeological societies. She is a member of the Society for Georgia Archaeology, the Bartow History Museum, Etowah Valley Historical Society, the Whitfield Murray Historical Society, and the Cherokee County Historical Society. She earned her Master of Arts degree in professional writing from Kennesaw State University. Lisa teaches English full-time at Georgia Northwestern Technical College. She is a part-time professor of communication at Kennesaw State University. She also teaches at Bellhaven University. In her spare time, you can find Lisa exploring North Georgia for her next story. Lisa, thanks for being on today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. Lisa, two questions to start with. Is there a difference between a lost town and a ghost town? And how did you get interested in researching this? That's a great question. I've never been asked that before. Um, The lost towns are towns that don't serve the purpose that they originally were created to do, if that makes sense. Ghost towns are... Um, kind of the same, but they always have that. They have that element of like a, like an old West ghost town, like Bodie or something like that. But the lost towns, there's a lot of towns that are just kind of uh, melted into the into the dirt, you know, into, entered into uh, melted away from the, in the past. Um, how I got started was in, um, I moved. I started going to this church at Castle Baptist Church. It was in Castle, Georgia. And there was something strange about the town. I remember thinking, there had to have been something else here. There had to have been something. This is strange. It's like a three-way stop to nowhere. And I started looking into it, and actually there was. It was one of the biggest towns between Atlanta and Chattanooga in the 1840s. It had two colleges. It had five uh, five or so attorneys. They had a courthouse that did most of the Cherokee Indian uh, court cases in that time. They had even had um, uh, thespians, you know, theater people. Mm-hmm. And it was a real culture. They considered themselves a real culture town. So, um, I, I, well, what happened? You know, that was a big town. Well, it wasn't just the Civil War. It was also that the railroad was coming through at that time, and they didn't want the stinky old railroad to come through their beautifully cultured town. And it was moved around them and went around to another town called Cartersville. And during the Civil War, um, I always call um, Sherman, probably shouldn't say this, but he's kind of a little bipolar. He he couldn't decide, well, should I burn this town or not? He wasn't planning on burning little old Castle, but he ended up burning it because the sharpshooters were annoying his soldiers. Um, and so he he had he just ordered it burned, and nothing was left of it about a few buildings, a couple churches, um, uh, a hospital where his soldiers were, a cemetery. Most everything else was burned. So that huge town, besides the railroad going around it, was already in decline during the Civil War. However, the Civil War cleaned it out. You know, so that's how I got started thinking about it because I've always been interested in those um, hidden things, those lost things. Um, of history. And so I wrote a proposal uh, from to History Press, and I said, I'd like to write about Castle. And they said, great, but we want you to write about all these other lost towns. So they gave me a list, and then I found some of my own, and I ended up writing about, I guess, 12 or so, of course, not covering them all. 
and that's how I got started and, and divided them into mining towns and mill towns and underwater drowned towns. And so each chapter was a different type of town in North Georgia, just in North Georgia. And I found all kinds of interesting things that I never would have thought. It's funny when you write a book and you do a lot of research, it takes you places you never intended to go, you know. Yeah, I mean, just like you did with Castle, and it's weird that you brought it up because that was part of my next question, that when you write about these places, you you tell their backstory, you know, whether they lost their places, maybe a county seat, prominence in some other, some other way. You talk about their beginnings, mm-hmm. which can be as tragic as well as the ending. Their beginnings can be as tragic as well as their endings. You know, with their history, um, like you said in the first book with the History Press, um, you said you wanted to bring dead towns back to life, at least with their mm-hmm. stories. And you really mm-hmm. do with the way you write about it. Um, and, you know, it's really neat to me with the historical societies and places like Castle. Um, it, in the introduction to that book, I think it is, when you write about, write about you know, taking glass from that stained glass window mm-hmm. in the church. Um, really, mm-hmm. really powerful piece of writing in its own right there. Um, Thank you. And besides being under a man-made body of water, which we're going to get to later, um, what other ways have towns become lost? You know, besides Castle, thing I'm thinking about the new story, the sad story of New Dakota, Awaria, and mm-hmm. Estelle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as you write, I'm an English teacher primarily. It's my full time job, and when I try to teach students how to write, I always say there has to be a thesis or a theme, of course, you know, to throughout the whole thing pulls it together. And sometimes when you're doing this research, you don't, you just think you're gathering stories, and then all of a sudden a, a theme or a thesis um, um, just appears out of nowhere. And I felt that this is kind of the thesis and theme of it, you know, just like people, towns have a time and a place and a reason. And when that time play time that time and time in history, um, or that reason for some reason that they decide to something happens and changes things, then their purpose is done and then the the town is done. You know, like we all have a purpose. And that's kinda I kinda looked at the, the towns as people, sort mm-hmm. of, characters in the story. So like little towns like Estelle, okay, Estelle. Most I, I was at speaking somewhere the, this week, and I asked the group. I said, "Have you ever heard of Estelle?" And they said, "No." You know, well, I hadn't either until I stumbled upon it, and it's not too far from where I live. It's up in North Georgia, in the Pigeon Mountains, and it was a iron ore uh, mining town. And if you go up there now, it's just wilderness. I mean, you could. It's very hard to find it. My husband's a hunter, and he found it one time when he was hunting in those mountains. Wow. And yeah, and it's like there's holes in the gra- in the in the mountain where they had a railroad track, a mini railroad track coming through huh. the mountain. Was that for the And there ore was like a thousand something? huh? Was that for yeah, like for the ore? ore? Yeah, wow. Yeah, to pull it through the mountain. I guess, you know, it was must have been I have some some pictures that I couldn't publish in my book because they weren't very high quality. All I have is some of the holes in the ground, but they have pictures of mining town, the mining town, and I swear if you go there now, you would think it was in the middle of the jungle because there's nothing there now. So that's very lost because obviously the purpose of mining iron ore was over. You know, they mined it out and the people left, and for that purpose. So um, another town. Um, trying to think of the other ones you mentioned. Um, well, the home next, my third. Yeah, Nuichota, Okay. Um, that actually is a created town, even though it was the Indian um, area of that, where they had camp meetings and stuff, but they've recreated it from several pieces, including one of the houses that was actually going to be under Lake Lanier, when and that's what the other book, but 
one of the houses was moved from where Lake Lanier was going to be flooded, and it was moved to New Echota because it had a connection to the Cherokee Indians. Mm-hmm. So New Echota, yeah, it's very sad. And um, one time I was when I first wrote my first book, I was so excited, and I gave it to the school librarian, and I went in there, and she's crying. I go, what? She goes, I just read the chapter about what they did to the Indians, the American Native Americans, excuse me, and. Um, I said, really? She goes, yeah, I, I never thought of it that way. And I wrote it in such a way as if some invading power came to the United States and knocked on your door and says, okay, get out. You, you've had two years. Now you got to get out, take whatever you can carry. And then they went and put them in stockades for years and, you know, a couple of years. And they, you know, just the, the way they were treated was so horrible. Yeah. And the librarian was touched by that. And I just was like, wow. And that place is just like 10 minutes from where we are right now, where I am in, in Calhoun, Georgia. Um, but I just, you know, just imagine people coming to your house and saying, get out, you know, and that's what we did. <laughs> so, yeah, and I brought that um, one up too, because it's, it's not just a lost town. It's, I mean, when you wrote that story, it was, it feels like a lost history because in, cause I grew up in Griffin. Um, I think mm-hmm. I've told you that before, South of Atlanta. And if mm-hmm. you grow up in Georgia in eighth grade, what do you have to learn? It's Georgia history. That's your year to study Georgia history. And mm-hmm. that really wasn't a part of Georgia history. It might be now. I don't know. But learning about, you know, you kind of learn a little bit about the Trail of Tears, but you mm-hmm. don't go really that deep into it. I don't know why. Well, I can't I speak to why, so, but that's that's a really deep, yeah, well, important story. I don't know if they teach it now, but the I have, I've had history teachers tell me they don't teach enough of it. And they wish that some of my stuff was in the curriculum. I yeah. said, okay, I'll be happy. But because there's so much history. And, and, and you know what? I grew up in New York, but I came down here when I was a teenager. And I'd heard about the Cherokees. I grew up around the Iroquois Indians. And I never was really that touched by them, if you want to know the truth. And so when I had to write this chapter, I really uh, I went out to the, the place. I like to go to the place that I'm writing about if I can and just sit there you know, and think about it. And I could, it was, I got more um, emotionally involved in writing that than I thought I would, if that makes any sense. And I started thinking of it because I was so inoculated, I'm not using the right word, I was so numb to, because we hear about Cherokees and go, all right, all right, you know, you hear it so much, you think, okay, whatever, I know that story. But I wanted to feel it and not just hear it again. And I wanted other people to hear it again, um, feel, feel it instead of just hearing it again like they did in school or didn't hear in school. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a lot of people don't even, even this town don't even know what that new Echota was about. I mean, you don't think about the fact the that road. they're being taken from there because, I mean, they were, you know, a, what was called then a civil, I mean, I'm using air quotes here. People can't really see it over audio. Come on, Johnny, you're better than that. But, you know, a civilized nation tribe, and they were their own nation, really. Yeah. You know, it was inside yeah, the country. Yeah, they were much smarter than most of the whites that lived around America. They really were, they yeah. They their own. And they, they were, really were, they were intelligent. dragged out of, it was almost mm-hmm. an extermination, if you will, of a nation. Oh, yeah. And taken away from the area. It was like a Holocaust. Area. Yeah. In a but, way, it was. We don't I mean, it sounds look at it like bad that. to say it that way. I mean, we weren't, they weren't put into, you know, they weren't, you know, killed off. You know, you know we can't say, you know, that way, but they were, they were taken out of an area. They were removed from ancestral lands to be yeah. taken out west. They were removed and from they were, where they lived. Which surprised me. I didn't know they were actually put in stockades near their homes that they lived in, just penned them in for a long time with no shelter, out in the rain, sun, snow, whatever. And a lot of them died there, just right right from their ho- near their homes. It just blows me away, you know. Um, yeah. and I'm just not an whole- expert in Indian history, but, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, you can't even, you know, deep dive, we can't, you know, we don't have the time to do it here, but deep dives even further into, like, the separation of powers and international government, you Mm -hmm. know, with, you know, when you Mm -hmm. go into it even deeper between uh, judicial and executive branch when it goes into can you do this or not, and it's a, it's, it's just a tragic story, but I mean, it it even got, I I deep dived in, what I'm trying to say is because you wrote that, I deep dived into it further, so your Mm -hmm. story encouraged me to deep dive into it more, so... You know, right, it's... because, you know, in, in the length of amount of writing I can do for the history press, it's not going to be like a huge, thick history book. You, My goal is to write stories that are draw people in and then do like you did is want to learn more. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, so you you definitely got me hooked and uh, had me stay up <laughs> doing that. Good. So congratulations, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. That's the teacher in me, I guess. Yeah, well, you inspired, so your students are very lucky. Now, in your first book, Lost Towns in North Georgia, you do have a chapter on drowned mm-hmm. towns, but you followed that book mm-hmm. up with underwater ghost towns of North Georgia, and you also, yeah. in the first book, touched on mill towns. And this mm-hmm. April 2020, your latest book, which we're going to be working on again, uh, Lost Mill Towns of North Georgia, will be released. <clears throat> but first, underwater towns. The state of Georgia okay. does not have many natural lakes. And those that are found are mostly near the coast. However, there are lakes mm-hmm. that have become well-known in North Georgia from a recreational aspect. Under those waters, mm-hmm. though, were places where people celebrated. They loved and they fought and they lived life. What brought mm-hmm. the creation of these lakes, or really reservoirs? And when did that begin? Mm-hmm. Um, in the, the turn of the century, when they needed power for the turn the of last Georgia, century, which was a good yeah. reason. Yeah. Yeah, what did I say? Turn of the last century. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I still think of the turn of the century as 1899 to 1900. I know. <laughs> Probably the 1900s. I don't know. If there was ever a you know, wonder, sometimes I wonder, do people live at other times or why are they so, like that era is just so, so interesting to me, I guess because of the Industrial Revolution, so many changes, you know, uh, in our world in Flight. 1900, yeah. 1920. Huh? Flight is about to start. Yes, yeah. 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 All the stuff that happened then, and I, I, it always seems to go back to that era, and that's when the the dam era <laughs> started. <laughs> with <laughs> I, I have a slide, and when I go speak, I said the dam era by the dam companies, because when I started that book, I just wanted to tell the stories about what could be under there. You know, were there really towns, or was it just community? You know, all that. So the more I, you know, did research and started studying, I started figuring out who did this, and it worked out that the book kind of organized under three. Uh, damn companies, <laughs> TVA, uh, Georgia Power, and um, Army Corps of Engineers. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to demonize them. I didn't want to start out like that. I even went to Georgia Power and asked them for help um, writing, and I never could get any help. So I just did what I did I could do on my own. So I found out, you know, a lot of things about, like, Lake Lanier and um, uh, the other lakes. Uh, Lake Lanier was Army Corps. Um, the, I always call them the Great Lakes of North Georgia are the Georgia Power Lakes, starting with Burton, Rabin, Yona. Um, There's just a series of them, Tula, And some of them are kind of controversial because um, after they got, you know, they, there's three reasons they started the lakes. was navigation, which is kind of seems like a strange one, but I mm-hmm. guess the, the rivers of North Georgia were just so vast they needed someone to navigate, and that was part of Army Corps. The other one was electro, hydroelectric power because it was free um, cheap, well, it wasn't free, but it was cheap to produce, and they needed it, and that was a thing. Flooding was another one. Towns like Rome, Georgia, would flood so bad that they would put riverboats, you know, at certain time periods down the main street. They actually had to roam, uh, build the town of Rome up, Rome up eight 
feet because it kept flooding so bad. So now there's like an underground Rome that people go and see sometimes. Um, anyway, so those are the really good reasons to do it. Eventually later we needed some water in Atlanta, so they created Lake Lanier and, and those things. But they kept doing it and kept doing it and from, from the early 1900s all the way. The last one I think was 95. But there's a story about Jimmy Carter, governor of, of Georgia. He uh, loved the natural um, North Georgia. And he started getting alerted by uh, people about the way that these companies, especially Army Corps, was damming these natural rivers that could never be reproduced in a lake what the natural rivers have. We've lost species of animals and I'm sorry, a fish and, and plant life that are not the same in a lake. A lake is a man-made reservoir, man-made lake, or human-made, and you can't reproduce that biology. And I'm not a biologist, but I've been told that. So he would go out on the the, the wild rivers, and he would he would raft and canoe, and not raft, but he would canoe, and um, he loved it. So he he when the Flint River project, they wanted to dam the Flint River's upper Flint River, and he opposed it. And it was not politically good for him to do that because I guess you know pol- uh, not po- politicians and um, business people wanted the revenue from because they bring a lot of revenue now because they're about recreation. Mm-hmm. They weren't supposed to be about recreation, but now they really are. So um, he opposed it, and then when he became president, he started he, – I heard he's a micromanager, and I'm reading from his own diary, but he went into the Army Corps of Engineers and did some investigating and found out they were trying to justify their own existence by building these dams. So he put a stop to, I think, 15 dams that were um, across the country that were going to be dammed and made into reservoirs when he was president. So in a way, he was kind of a hero for the natural um, beauty of like North Georgia. Um, when you read old things from Bartram and other things, there was no lakes in North Georgia. I, I really don't believe there may have been something like you said, coastal, you know, waters and the, you know, the the. Um, the swamp and all that. But up in North Georgia, it was all rivers, beautiful, flowing, wild rivers, you know. And that was a big surprise to me when I was writing that. You know, I was born in western New York where I took my husband up to the – he was born in Resaca, Georgia. And he saw Lake Carter's Lake being built. So when I took him to see a natural uh, lake, the Lake Erie, he said, wow, you can't see the other side. And I was like, look at him. I'm like, what? You can't see that? Of course you can't see the other side. It's Lake Erie. <laughs> And he just had never seen a natural lake. And he grew up in North Georgia. And that just always was, that was always in the back of my mind for years. So when I started writing it, it came back to me remembering that, him watching uh, Lake Carter's Lake being dug out, you know, when he was younger. So, um, so I don't remember where I was at. But anyways, um, that's, that's, kind of what I, that's kind of what happened is when I was discovering, you know, when people say, um, well, what's under there? Well, if you go to Lake Lanier, it's a lot of trees and a lot of bushes and a lot of junk. And divers will tell you it's very hard to see underneath there. And they never really can ever find anything, but it's so muddied up and so uh, full of uh, branches and trees that if someone does fall over and drown, it's very hard to recover their body. So the story of the women, the two women that went over the bridge... And weren't the one one they were never recovered. The, well, it was in '58, and the bodies, one body came up after a few months with one hand. <laughs> it's terrible, and they say she haunts the lake. That's one of those stories which I can't verify. But the other story is the other part of the story is the other woman wasn't found till 1995, I believe, when they were, re, re, were reworking the bridge. They dug down and they found her her Ford and her in that um, mm. that old. You know that she had fell, fell over in 1958. So 
there's a lot of stories like that about Lake Lanier, and it gives it the reputation of being cursed. You know, it's cursed, it's haunted. And you ask me what are lost and what are lost and haunted. Well, I think the haunted comes from the stories that people either add to it or actually have experienced. Because if you go to somewhere like Altoona, which is another underwater, Lake Lanier, Lake Altoona has more actual towns under there than any other lake in Georgia. There's Altoona. There's Etowah, there's uh, Abernathyville, and there's several others that the Historical Society has found and documented. So Lake Altoona, if you go on Lake Altoona to Altoona Pass, they still have the pass where the battle was there. And people say that they walk down the pass, it feels haunted. And I'll be honest with you, I went there one day at dusk, bad bad idea, <laughs> it gets dark, yeah, and I'm walking really down there and it feels creepy. I don't, I can't, you know, I didn't see anything, hear anything, but there's all kinds of stories of, of, uh, uh, hauntings of, of of phantom trains, phantom soldiers, that kind of thing. And even the Atlanta Journal, and I did document this in my book because it was the Atlanta Journal Constitution in the 1800s documented phantom soldiers on the Altoona Pass um, on top of trains that would go through there at that time. So, you know, there are that's probably the difference between the ghost and the lost. Lost may be just lost for its purpose, like some of the mill towns is not what they used to be. Or maybe that there is a, a legacy attached to them that from stories, whatever that can't totally be verified. Yeah, I mean, we, you so, know, and we before we started recording, we kind of talked about, you know, because you and I both have a little bit of experience of talking about, you know, because ghost stories, you know, aren't our favorite. We, but we did agree that there was there there is, you know, experience in talking about how ghost stories lead to talking about history, and there's merits to ghost stories too. We we agreed on that too. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. and I'm not saying ghost stories aren't real and you're not saying ghost stories aren't real. I mean, cause we, I don't, here's what I say, Lisa, about ghost stories is that I'm not going to take a chance either way. You know what I mean? I'm not going to take that <laughs> chance cause I'll be, okay, look, you, you brought up Alatoona. I'll be honest with you. I've camped at Red Mountain up, you know, around uh-huh. that lake and it's, it can get creepy at night up there. It really can. Yes. Uh, well, that, that area, really at Alatoona. Just think of all the – there's one thing I always think about. And on and, and the Discovery Channel thing that I'm going to be on, I talked about the graves that were underneath there. Um, people said, well, they got all the graves out, didn't they? No, mm-hmm. they didn't. Um, so, like, for instance, uh, so if you're on, like, Red, Red Top and you're on Altoona, I'm sure there's graves in there. I'm pretty sure that there's unmarked graves that were left, you know. There might be some um, of them lead coffins the, in there still that you have in one of the books, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or two of the books. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, Etowah. It has the as the the coffin because the um, Iron Man of of Georgia, Mark Anthony Cooper, had uh, his kids encased. And the first book I had it wrong, and the second book I got it right. It wasn't the the Mister and Mrs. Cooper. It was their kids that had died, and they put them in cast iron because that's what they made cast iron coffins. Mm. But they actually moved that whole family um, from a. They had a mansion in. Um, Altoona underneath it would be well I have this other story called Ghosts of Glen Holly that's not in the book but it's on Etowah Valley Historical Society on my website it's called the Ghosts of Glen Holly it's underneath like Altoona and when the water goes down like it did recently because we didn't have any rain you know for a while the water goes way down you can actually see the mansion area come up by the ground uh, from a boat dock and there's you know pictures of you know, in in that story, pictures of walls and and, and the, the the diagram of what the house looked like, and family members of that family have gone out and collected things from that. So that that's a whole family, and their whole graveyard was there, and they actually had to have the Army Corps move them, and that's what those pictures of the cast iron caskets is. They moved them to, in the 50s to a, a place in Cartersville, so they had their own special place in the Cartersville um, 
the cemetery with the coop for the Cooper family. So yeah, but there's other stories like Lake Notley. I'm going to be on the Bitter Southerner podcast, and I went up there and we talked, and I had a map, and it showed about 88 graves that the um, Army, uh, the TVA had found for Lake Notley, and of those 88 graves, grave. I'm sorry, not graves, but grave um, like sites. Only three grave, two two graves were actually moved. <laughs> only two out of 88 <sighs> grave sites. Because they couldn't, they yeah. didn't know what to do with them. There was, a, and one lady said, and "This was kind of funny from a neighboring town. Before they flooded, they went to her and asked her, should we move your grandmother's remains?' Oh no, just leave Granny there. She'll be happy there.' <laughs> so, well. think about all the graves <laughs> that are underneath the, those lakes. And if he's believed in paranormal at all, that has to be kind of a little creepy, you know. So, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of creepy stories like that. Uh, when I worked uh, with this, the first book, there's a book story called Skull about Skull Shoals. And I was just trying to find pictures, and I tell the story in my book about meeting this, I call her my psychic friend, because I don't like, she doesn't like to be advertised, but she's in the book, so so she took me out to Skull Shoals, and um, she told me that, you know, that she could find the graves of the story, and the story is documented in the National Archives of the Indians um, massacring this family, and there happened to be her relatives from a long time ago, and she actually took a dowsing route and said this is where they're buried, a lot of people don't believe that. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, she had the story. She had the documentation. So I put that in, the, in there. But it is a scary story. And it, it does draw people in to hear the rest of this. Then people might like go, oh, I want where Skull Shoals. I want to learn more about it. And that's always a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's the gateway. So, ghost stories. Yes, we said it earlier before we started drug. recording. The gateway. Ghost stories, the gateway drug to history. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to use that. It's my gift to you, Lisa, to use oh, that Oh, thank one. you very much. Um, but, you know, with Allatoon and Dam, yes, the gateway drug, people are going to be like, I don't know, Johnny, if you should have said that. And I'm like, I don't care. I think it's a great way to say it. <laughs> you know me long enough to say I just say stuff. Um, that's so, right. Well, that's that's why we work good together. <laughs> we work so well too. together. Excuse me. You I'm too. an English teacher. Eh, Cut that part out. <laughs> it's Friday. No, we're good. Yeah. It's Friday. We're just going to let it go. Um we're going to stay on Altitude of Dam for a second because, you know, growing up in the South, you know, my, well, I'm more Rev War, Revolutionary War. My brother is more Civil War. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you grow up in Griffin around Atlanta, you're not going to have a lot of Revolutionary War history. You're going to have more Civil War in that area. Yeah. But Altitude yes. Dam, when work began there, you know, history soon relating to the Civil War history uh, in Civil War era fake news. I really enjoyed that chapter, but including sites along the path of the Great Locomotive Railroad Chase would soon be underwater. Do you know what it was like in that time period, the mid-20th century, for historians? Was there as much of a feeling of loss at that time as there would be now when we would lose sites like that? You know, no, and I don't think, what bothers me is the archaeology. They didn't do any archaeology. They did a little bit on Altoona. But the other ones, it's like they didn't care. I mean, it was like not an issue. If you look at the newspaper clippings from Lake Lanier, Lake Lanier and Altoona kind of sim- are similar to me in the time period. Oh, Lake, Al- Lake Lanier was like a big dog and pony show. It was like, oh, okay, we're going to get the politicians, and there was all these things, a, a ribbon cutting, a opening of the gate, everything. But you never heard anything about archaeology or the history. That was just kind of glossed over. Mm. I don't. I don't think they cared as much as we do now. Yeah. And what? And you're really I, close I'm to the centennial too, right? I mean, the centennial of the war. Of, yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah, and they didn't seem to. It wasn't that big of a deal, I guess. I don't. I, don't, I did. I don't really don't understand that. If you want to know the truth, I yeah. don't. 
I wasn't born yet, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it just but, uh, it just kind of bugged I, me, you know, and I was, I was like, I'm going to yeah. ask Lisa about that. It's like they didn't, especially like way long time ago, like in the early, the turn of the century, there were still Civil War veterans um, around and, you know, but the, they were mostly focused on those way remote places up in like uh, Burton and Altoona, not Altoona, sorry, um, Blue Ridge and um, Tulula Falls. Those are the earlier ones, and so there wasn't a lot of Civil War stuff going on up there. So Blue Ridge was more of an Indian. They they said that Blue Ridge, which is sad, almost every lake is – people say what's well, down there. I said, well, probably Indian heritage, you know, Native American stuff. Um, when they let the water down in Blue Ridge in the 2000s, I think it's 2008, they said they found stacked stones, which, again, I'm not an expert on Indians, but they say that's from um, the – Cherokees that they had the, the the area of Blue Ridge was actually kind of a retreat center. It wasn't a war, so they didn't find a lot of um, uh, arrowheads, but they found like uh, worship type things, like the oh. stack stones and things. So you know, all, if you think about every single lake, every piece of land you walk on in North Georgia didn't belong to the white man, anyways. It belonged to you know Native Americans. Yeah, and so the, you know, if you that learn about Native, lost. yeah, if you learn about Native American histories, they didn't really see it as like land that was owned, you know. It was shared. Oh. It was it was you know hunting grounds and right and and the, so when you're talking about the Civil War, well, under Lake Altoona is Etowah, okay. And if you ever go to Cartersville, Etowah is the place where it says Cooper's uh, Day Day Use Area. Mm-hmm. That that was a furnace, an iron furnace that Cooper came in in the um in the early eighteen. Um, 30s, I believe. And he came in and he started building up that business. He bought it from somebody, built it up, and it became a town. I mean, he created Etowah. And they had things like um, uh, milling, uh, flouring mills, um, which is like a flour mill, I guess, nails, nail mills. They had all kinds of stuff. They even made their own wine. I found that out recently. (laughs) They had their own wine label and everything. They had a whole town. People lived there. And then... um, during the Civil War, he kind of he kind of gave everything away to the Confederacy, and, and I'm just summarizing it really badly. But he gave it away, and basically they came in and destroyed it anyways. Um, the the Union destroyed it completely, so they couldn't make anything with iron in it anymore, like railroad ties and things. Yeah. And so it was on decline after the Civil War. But then when the 50s came, the land was pretty wild, and so the family reluctantly, um, you know, sold gave it to the sold it, I guess. Um, and I have I have thousands of records by the Cooper family. They had a lot of influence in North Georgia, and in Rome and in Bartow. And so a lot of the stuff I information I get I can verify from these people didn't throw anything away. So I have every little note, dot, and tittle that they wrote, <laughs> and I've used it to write a lot of things. And I'm so grateful to families like that that save everything and keep it for the future because if you don't do that, it's lost. Like I wouldn't, we wouldn't know anything about that place if it wasn't for that family saving all the records. I love stuff like that. I love it when you can go through, you know, any kind of family documents. I don't know if you research your family history, but it's also helpful when yeah. people who have, you know, have records relating to your family, even if it's a receipt right. and somebody's bought a suit or something. It's just neat to know somebody's suit size. You know, relating to it, it's 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 great to have. <laughs> because that. you every when I teach writing, I always say those little details is what makes you feel like you were there. Yeah, and if you can find as many things, so 
one article I'm writing that I haven't written yet. I keep like I told you before. I'm a I'm a reluctant writer so much. I have these ideas and then it's like, oh, I'm being terrible. I don't need to write that. But I have to. That's why I like working for History Press. I have deadlines and I have to do it. But there's a story I want to write about this woman in North Georgia, and I happen to have a note that her family wrote to each other about her obituary. That when I write it, it's going to make some people in North Georgia mad because I believe she started some big institution that she wasn't given credit for. That's all I'll say. Yeah, no, <laughs> so the only way I know that is because this little tiny note the brothers wrote to each other on a little scrap piece of paper and they saved it. <laughs> well, Lisa, we're going to give a shout out to my mom because they can like it or lump it. And that's what my mom always told me. So. <laughs> well, yeah. I won't get into why they wouldn't like it, but when you, I, I'm going to try to write for Back Road to Georgia. I hope they'll, I hope they'll take this story, but it's a, it's, it's an interesting story. So, but you can't get that stuff without these records from family exactly. members and from people that save it. Um, you know, Lake Altoona has the records of all these towns, and all these other lakes don't have these records because nobody saved them. But we have really good historians in Bartow County that save all that stuff. And that's why we have, you know, they even have maps of where the towns and the mills were and the, you know, everything on their yeah. website. It's, if you ever want to look at it, it's EVH, Etowah Valley Historical Society Online.org. It's, a, it's kind of a strange email address, but web address, but it's Etowah Valley Historical Society. Yeah, and they've but been they good to us. Stuff. The Bartow County has been good to us, to both of us, yeah. um, throughout yeah, these Yeah, processes. they've written a lot for History Press. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about your new book. I haven't got to see okay. it yet, but before the baby comes, I just wanted to go ahead and talk to you about it so we can make sure we got our podcast in. Um, okay. Because we're recording ahead of time, but your new book will come out April 13th. I already know it's going to be awesome because it's one of your books. And it's all about oh, lost thanks. mill towns. And mm-hmm. I do know a little bit about mill towns. Uh, mill towns were a large story of the state of Georgia and South uh-huh. Carolina and Alabama, and you know, even mm-hmm. before the war. But especially after the Civil War for a lot of families. And when I say mm-hmm. that, Lisa, I'm thinking about my family and my wife's family. I was wondering. My great-grandmother worked for a mill that no longer exists in Griffin, Dundee Mills. In fact, they blew it up in one of the last uh, <laughs> movies for, uh, gosh, what was that movie that came out? It was it was one of those dystopian future movies. I probably shouldn't say it on the podcast anyway. <laughs> Um, and my wife's <laughs> grandfather was up in one of Rome's mill villages, um, working up there. So I think it was a Selenese. That's why I write a lot about Rome. That's the Selenese. Yeah, mill yeah. village. Yeah. So he was, uh, yeah. he worked up there. He actually started, uh, low and actually worked his way higher up. He, his name was, uh, Cheryl was the last name. So he uh-huh. worked up there in one of those villages, but these towns had That's their own right, way of doing wife. things. Ma'am? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. your wife went to Barry. She did, did go she to live Barry, in Rome. Yeah. Well, okay. she, her, her mom grew up in Rome. And mm-hmm. her mom went to Barry for a little while, shorter also, for a little bit. And then my wife actually grew up in Gwinnett County, but decided to go to Barry for college. Um, mm-hmm. But all these towns, they had their own way of doing things. They almost had their own caste system or their own yes. class system in a way. For instance, I know in yes. Jacksonville, Alabama, which is taking us out of Georgia, but they had, mm-hmm. you know, A A Street, B Street, C Street, D Street, and what street you lived on determined, you know, where you were in the ranking system, almost in a way. <laughs> and, you know, they had their own credit system in these towns, too, which was kind of a way to keep mm-hmm. money within the mill system also. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would it mm-hmm. be like, you know, to live in one of these towns? If, you know, I know I just talked about it a little bit, but you know more about it than I do, I think. What, what- when you were talking about Selenies, I had heard that too. Is that the the town the Selenies has one of the 
um, the newest mill villages, like it was like after they stopped building mill villages, they start they built theirs just because they needed to. But for the most part, they stopped building the mill villages in the in the 20s and 30s, maybe 40s. But they they started selling them off in the 40s and 50s. So Selenies built them in the time where they're selling them off, and they built mm. beautiful brick houses yeah. that are still look nice and can renov- a lot of them are renovated, but they still look great. Yeah, they but that do. town is laid out with. Let a, I think it's like I forgot how it is, but there's a there's a, a pecking order. Plus, the boss has got the bigger houses. Yeah, you know, and they, one of them lived in the historic uh, chieftains museum, which is what they call it now, but it was the chieftain's house. Um, they the owner lived there, so yeah, it was a pecking order. And and okay, Lindell, Rome is huge with a lot of places. You know, Rome had the most of the towns. I tried to I had to cut off to make it North Georgia. In fact, the book had too many words. I had to cut off about three chapters, which I hated. I had to cut off the Fulton County, Fulton Bag Company, and um, uh, some of the Fulton County, which I'm going to add to my blog so that they'll be extra free. The lost chapters, I'm calling them. <laughs> because there, there's so many mills and so many stories. You know, it's funny you brought up, Lisa, about the um, houses, because when my wife's father passed, we actually went by the house that her mother grew up in. Oh, really? And her mother took us by the house, and it's still there, and it does look great still. Yeah, most of them, not a lot of them don't look that way, okay? Yeah. If you go to, there's a mill right here where I work in Calhoun, which I would never even know. I went, I drove by this little little bunch of houses so many times, just thought it was a poor section of town. I mean, there's kudzu growing on the half of them and, you know, windows broken out. It looks terrible, you know, and I never realized that that was the mill town for, it's, um, they call it a choda. Yeah, new choda. No, it's not new choda. Um I'm going to forget it right now. I'll have it in front of me. But that whole, the only thing that's left is a stack and a bunch of old beat-up houses. But places like Selene's built so well in the beginning that they – and Lindale built some really good houses. And they were also based on pecking order. The lowest – the workers got the certain section, and then there was another section called Jamestown. And the bosses, managers lived in those houses. And those houses are really well uh, taken care of. But the, again, remember I talked about themes and thesis. The thesis of this book was this was a time period, the mill era time. There was a time period for a certain time that we needed it for a time in the South um, to pull us out of the agricultural slump in the eight, late 1800s or 1900s. And to get the farmers off the farm, they had to give them somewhere to live. So these a lot of these farmers came off failing farms and moved into these villages that were modern to, at that time. Some of them had water, some of them didn't. Some of them had electricity, some of them didn't. Um, most of them didn't have plumbing, but they had facilities. And they took care of them. And the term that they use, historians use, is called paternalism. And paternalism was like, Daddy's taking care of you. And Daddy took care of them for years until they decided to rebel. And when they rebelled because of the New Deal laws, and they started realizing, hey, we don't have to put up with this garbage anymore. Um, we can fight, and they had all these strikes, and so Daddy kind of kicked his family out and says, now you're on your own. And I'm saying that real simplistically, but that's really kind of what happened. Um, the heat said, okay, you're on your own now. So the, the unions kind of um, – that the, the union strikes and everything uh, caused a better life for them, mm-hmm. but yet it destroyed the Mill Village era. So it stopped. They started selling the houses out. They stopped doing so many. I mean, they did everything for these people. They had entertainment. They had doctors. They had. They built the schools. You know, they didn't make them go to the schools at certain times, but they built schools where they wanted to. They provided, um, you know, just everything. That everything they could need, that they were provided. 
as long as they were in that system, you know, the paternalism paternalistic system. Um, but they were also abused. Children working in the mills. Yeah. Um, a lot of pictures in my book about the children's working with barefoot in the middle of the winter, working in dangerous, dangerous mills. Um, there was a lot of not they're they're not safe. A lot of them. Um, a lot of abuse, just all kinds of things. Um, and the, and they would spy on them. The the big mills would spy on their workers to see if they're unionizing. So they employed people like Pinkerton mill uh, Pinkerton agents to sp- spy on the mill villages. Pinkerton agents, wow. Yeah, yeah. That was mostly in the Fulton County, um, the the Fulton Bag Company. Yeah, they would spy on them. Not just Pinkerton, they get railroad detectors and everything because they, it was such. It would be such a loss for them to have, be have uh, unionized workers because it would cost them so much. So. I had no idea they would have Pinkertons. Wow, that is. Yep. I mean, Pinkerton Detective actually, Agency. That that was a big agency. I mean, from the eighteen yeah. late eighteen fifties or eighteen sixties on. I mean, the mm-hmm. Pinkertons before the Secret but, Service was a big deal. They you know were guard presidents and things of that mm-hmm. nature. I mean, they were a big deal. Well, the, the, it was mostly Fulton Bag Company, and they were actually investigated um, in the '30s for the, their not following of the New Deal laws, and they were investigated and brought in a lot of people. But they were pretty sneaky about the way and there's all these records that georgia tech saved from that time um people actually employees spying they would hire employees to spy and there's all these papers of their reports and what they would say about this one's there in the neighborhood they were talking about union so they'd tell on each other and they get money for it so there was murders too during um 1934 there was a great strike and this rebel they call them rebel rousers they were called the Flying Squadron. They'd get in a big truck, and they'd go all over the South, and they would get people to stop their work in the mill and join them on the strike. And this was in the 34. So there's people that were didn't like that. Of course, the owners didn't like it. They, in Calhoun, they put a machine gun on the top of the mill to shoot people away if they tried to come and unionize. And in Tryon, people were killed. In Atco, people were fought. You know, Some mills, they didn't do anything. But especially in North Carolina and North Georgia, there was – there was some murder and death going on um, because of, during that 1934 strike. Wow. Well, well that would, They're what curious a, about their industry. <laughs> they really were. Jeez. All right. Well, that was a great teaser for your upcoming book. And, Lisa, we're actually going to keep talking after we sign off, but I'm going to do something a little bit different okay. since we're going to keep talking. Um, I want to say thanks for being on today, but I want to wind Thank down you. the podcast with you on with me. What do you say? Sure. All right, great. So let's go ahead. Let's thank the audience for joining us today. I want to let everybody know that you can find Lisa's books at ArcadiaPublishing.com and at your local bookstores. And Lisa, on your website too, right? Yes. All right. Uh, www.LisaMRussell.net. All right, LisaMRussell.net. And while you're at ArcadiaPublishing.com, though, enter in your zip code on the search bar to see what books at ArcadiaPublishing.com and the History Press has on your town. And if you have an idea for a book and want to tell your local history story, reach out to Arcadia by visiting ArcadiaPublishing.com. Scroll on down to the bottom of the page and click the Make Me an Author link. It's the first step in writing your own history book and telling the history of your town, state, or region. If you have questions for me or episode suggestions, shoot me an email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. As always, I want to thank my pals Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. Remember, you can visit them on Facebook at Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. And I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>